within the mental health world as it is, to be honest, you are unlikely to get anything that isn't a diagnosis and medication. And that's just the reality of things. If you want to think about what the alternatives are to sum them up in a nutshell, then it's about understanding people's stories. I think that's the shortest way of looking at it. States of Mind is a social enterprise that was created to bring forward a new way of thinking about mental health. One that does not pathologise our experiences, but seeks to understand the meaning of them. Understanding the, the many circumstances that can lead people to feel all sorts of degrees of distress. And interestingly, this is an approach that's much more strongly based on the evidence. So there is an overwhelming amount of evidence that people's distress of all types, and that includes the most severe types, it includes things we call psychosis and schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and so on, is just about always the end result of a complex mixture of factors. The organisation was inspired by grassroots movements that were emerging across the world that called for a paradigm shift in how we conceptualise distressing experiences and most importantly, how we support people to overcome their difficulties and live fulfilling lives. If we think about the kind of epidemic of mental health problems, particularly suffered by young people nowadays, then I think if we look beyond people's backgrounds, which may well be secure and loving, we see that people are struggling with horrendously difficult messages. This podcast features Lucy Johnstone, a clinical psychologist who has dedicated her professional life to advocate for and design a new future for the mental health system. My name is Lucy Johnston. I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, I've been around for quite a while. Um, I've divided my career between working in mental health services, um, nearly always with adults, with um, often with quite complex mental health difficulties. I've also done some teaching and training and writing, and I'm currently working as an independent trainer. I had the honour of interviewing Lucy in 2016. It was a time when I was still coming to terms with the implications that her messages had on my own perception and historical understanding of our mental health system. Throughout this time, there's been a common thread of really wanting to open up and introduce different ways of understanding what mental health is, what it's about, you know, how we understand it, what assumptions we make about it, and through challenging a lot of the assumptions that are, I think, often taken for granted, but which aren't actually very strongly based in evidence, uh, coming up with different ways, better ways of helping people to overcome their struggles and lead the kind of lives that they want to lead. In this interview, I asked Lucy about how our existing paradigm came to be, the issues with prevailing narratives, and the implications these narratives have for how we perceive people's mental and emotional distress. mental health system mm. and the, the idea of mental illness and disorders mm. came to be and the idea of a chemical imbalance okay. being the cause. 
the very common idea is that people who suffer from mental health problems are suffering from some kind of illness or disorder. And that's also what the messages that are put forward by mental health organisations, by anti-stigma campaigns and so on. It's become so obvious that it may seem quite odd to question it. And we use language which assumes that way of thinking. We talk about illnesses, we talk about patients, we talk about disorders, we talk about symptoms. And we tend to think that the right place to help people is in hospitals and other medical settings with professionals who are basically medically trained, particularly doctors and nurses. We tend to think that nearly everybody need, needs to be on some kind of medication. Now, from my point of view and the point of view of many other people nowadays, and there's always been this alternative way of thinking actually, none of these things are actually strongly based in the evidence. I would go further and say none of those things are true. And moreover, it actually has many damaging effects. There is a general tendency for people to be told, let's say you go along to your GP with any type of problem, might be kind of feeling very anxious or feeling very desperate and miserable and suicidal. The likelihood is that you will be told you have an illness which is due to some kind of chemical imbalance, um, possibly also due to some kind of inherited factor. Um, now, there is actually no evidence that that's the case. It um, may seem odd to say that because these things have passed into the common language, haven't they? Chemical imbalance. My, I, I have an illness called depression. And, you know, we are encouraged to not to feel too shamed or stigmatised by this, but we are, which is fair enough, but we are not encouraged to actually question the idea itself. And actually, I think one of the most, the biggest contribution to feelings of shame and stigma and social exclusion is the idea that you have some something wrong with your brain that makes you feel like this. So the best way forward, it seems to me, would be to have a different kind of understanding. Nevertheless, these views have really taken deep root. And yet at the moment, there are some encouraging signs. I think they're starting to crumble. So, for example, the chemical imbalance theory, the idea that Depression, what we might call depression, or things we might call schizophrenia, are caused by too much or too little of serotonin, dopamine, whatever the current theory is, they tend to change. This really took hold in the 1980s. That's probably not a coincidence, given you know the many political upheavals that were going on at the time, but that's when it really took hold. It has never actually had any evidence to support it. No one has ever been able to produce any evidence that shows, for example, that if you are feeling very miserable and desperate, your serotonin levels are low, and that if you boost them, you then feel better. And if you think about it for a minute, I think we all know that's true, because that's not what happens if you go to your GP. Your GP doesn't say, I will just take your blood levels to see if you have got low serotonin. Oh, you better have these serotonin boosting pills, come back and we'll check your levels in a month's time. It, it actually doesn't work like that. In fact, this, this theory, like the dopamine theory, came about because the things we call antidepressants do have an effect on serotonin. So by a form of rather strange logic, it was therefore argued that perhaps the lack of serotonin is the cause of low mood. It's a little bit like saying aspirin can help my headache, therefore my headache must be caused by a lack of aspirin in the brain. You can see that's actually not logical, actually doesn't make sense. We don't actually know what the so-called normal levels of these chemicals in the brain often are. And interestingly, because it's recently become true that this is not a sound theory, some of the, the most senior doctors in the world are rapidly backtracking from it. 
they are actually saying, particularly in America, we never said that. Doctors never promoted this message. We never promoted this message. It's absolutely untrue. You can see it everywhere and you can also read it in kind of pharmaceutical company literature and, you know, you, you see it all over the place. I think it's really quite revealing the fact that many, some senior doctors are backtracking, denying they ever said it, and worse, they are, one or two of them are actually saying, this is a myth put around to discredit us. Um, that is quite extraordinary. The viewpoint that Lucy brings forward has the potential to radically alter the way our society understands the meaning of mental health problems and the way that our mental health system responds to them. So none of this means that medication is of no use um, because medication can help people get through the day if they're feeling very desperate. Uh, so it's important not to take a kind of anti-medication line, that's not what I'm saying, but it is important to know what the medication can and can't do. And one thing it is not doing is correcting some kind of imbalance that is causing your depression. It's also important not to stop taking medication suddenly. You have to be very careful about any changes you make in your medication. You must take professional advice about that. But I think one thing it is important to take on board is that you are the best judge of whether your med medication is helping you. You will know how, whether it helps you to get through the day and that's the most important deciding factor, quite separate from what you might read or you know, what you might sometimes be told. So part of my work has always been to try to encourage people to question these ideas, to think about alternatives, and I've done that through writing, teaching, training and clinical practice. And not just me, of course, um, in recent years, there has been really quite a movement towards challenging these ideas, helping people to think differently, both by professionals and very often by people who've been through the psychiatric system themselves. People who were patients who sometimes now call themselves survivors. What do you think is the danger of continuing this current approach in the in the long term? Um, I think the dangers of this approach are often vastly underestimated. So quite a common figure that you'll read is that people with long-term mental health problems uh, live on average up to 20-25 years shorter lives than people without. So that's sometimes attributed to things like they're not getting proper physical health care or they're living in situations of poverty and so on, and that certainly is part of it. The bit of it we don't want to know about is the increasing evidence that long-term use of medication is actively damaging and creates, almost certainly creates, much more disability than it cures. So as rates of prescribing have risen in societies, so have rates of disability. If psychiatric medication was about healing people, curing people, you'd expect the reverse to happen. And I think we know that. We read all the time about an epidemic of depression. We also read at the same time that nearly everyone's on antidepressants, so-called. Well, if the antidepressants were doing what it says on the tin, there'd be less depression, not more. But it doesn't seem to be working like that, does it? Again, I must emphasise that doesn't mean you that medication of no use and it certainly doesn't mean you should suddenly stop it, you have to be very careful and take professional advice. But there's a very 
large amount of evidence that over the long term medication does much more harm than good. So this is about you know, shortening people's lives. This is about creating disability, not reducing disability. These are very, very serious long-term impacts. And this is also about giving people labels which they nearly always experience as intensely stigmatising and shaming, which makes people feel they're somehow different from the rest of the human race, that they may have you know, barriers to making friends, to partners, they may worry about passing things on to their children, they may have find it difficult to get employment. You know, there are huge social and personal implications to being given labels, which are actually are not valid categories. And perhaps it's worth saying again that along with the questioning the chemical imbalance theory, what's not often appreciated, and I've discussed it in this book, is that um the very people who draw who draw up these diagnostic categories, the very senior psychiatrists, mainly in America, who draw up these diagnostic categories, are publicly admitting that they don't they're not valid. They don't hang together. They're not supported by evidence about what's going wrong with supposedly in people's brains and so on. And in fact they are saying we need to write a new diagnostic manual from scratch, which will take at least ten to twenty years. But meanwhile we have to hang on to this because it's the best we've got. Well, it isn't the best we've got. We have alternatives. We always have had alternatives. Alternatives boil down to listening to what's gone on in people's lives. That's what we should be doing. In the 1980s, a small group of psychiatrists in America created the DSM-3, a diagnostic manual that rapidly expanded the types of experiences that psychiatrists believed could be considered a mental illness. Unlike other areas of medicine, these diagnostic categories were the first to be created without having identified any underlying biological cause. Alan Francis, a psychiatrist who led the task force, responsible for creating the diagnostic manual, has since become one of the most outspoken critics of the very diagnostic system he proposed. He continues to advocate about the lack of evidence to this day. In February this year, he tweeted about this issue, saying the term biomarker has a very specific meaning in psychiatry, a reliable biological measure accurately predicting whether someone has or doesn't have a particular mental disorder. We still have no biomarkers in psychiatry, despite 40 years and tens of billions of dollars having been spent on extensive brain and gene research. I asked Lucy about how effective this medical model is for helping people, and with so little evidence behind it, how it was able to dominate the approach to mental health care in the Western world. Okay, so I've been kind of questioning the idea that people are suffering mainly from some kind of illness that may be based in the brain, that may be partly inherited, and that is best treated by medication. And because that's what we so often hear and read, it's sometimes quite difficult to step back and realise this is actually a relatively recent idea. It probably dates back to about late 19th century, 1900 and so on. That's when the idea really began to take off in a big way. Before then we had lots of very different ways of understanding people's distress. And it's not universal cross-culturally either. 
Many other cultures have very different ways of um, understanding distress and promoting healing. And from our current perspective, we may see those as kind of, you know, less sophisticated and so on. I don't actually think that's fair because one of the things that isn't widely appreciated is that recovery from what we call, might call serious mental illness has always been um, much better. The rates have been much better in countries which have not been taken over by this particular Western way of understanding distress. So the things that we might call schizophrenia, let's say, are likely to be much more short-lived, to have much better outcomes if you're living in a kind of village in the middle of, let's say, um, rural Brazil or something like that. It's, it's really very interesting. That's a well-established fact. I mean, that on its own should suggest that we've got something really quite badly wrong about the way we understand what we call mental illness. So this idea has been around a relatively short time historically. It's not, under, it's not um, reached everywhere cross-culturally, although and I think this is a very regrettable development, it is being rapidly exported. There's a lot of drug company money behind exporting this idea across the globe in a movement called the Global Mental Health Movement. It's there for a reason, and I think it's not very difficult to see how it serves a number of purposes. And a very obvious one is drug companies. You know, they are extraordinarily wealthy companies. It is in their interest to promote the kind of illness agenda. They fund research projects. They have quite a large part often in training professionals and in dictating what goes into journals. They have powerful advertising. I think it can often be politically very useful to see people as suffering from mental illnesses rather than the long-term effects of very damaging social policies. For example, we prefer to think that mental illness causes homelessness than homelessness, cause, homelessness causes mental illness. You know, there are depending on which way you look at it, there's the solution of giving people pills and there's someone else's problem, or the solution of building more houses, among other things. So you can see there might be some advantages to a kind of mental illness understanding for all types of government. I think there can sometimes be advantages um, for people themselves because it can come as a relief and, you know, understandably perhaps people want a simple answer. Wouldn't it be nice if a pill could put it right? So for people, for their families and friends, it's sometimes maybe easier to feel some professional can put this right. We don't have to look at perhaps, you know, sometimes quite difficult and painful things that may have happened to us, things that may be difficult about our relationships. So there are all sorts of levels at which this story fits and serves some people's interests. And of course, most people aren't giving, given an option of alternative form of understanding. The trouble is, what can easily happen is that people's very real reasons for being distressed get sealed off behind a label. Once you think it's because of the illness of depression or psychosis or whatever, you kind of stop asking, well, okay, so how did that happen? So what else is going on in your life? You stop asking what the meaning of those experiences is. As a clinical psychologist, I would say experiences always have meaning. The most apparently bizarre beliefs, the most strange experiences like voices shouting at you inside your head, they have meaning. You know, the identity of the voice, the things the voices say, they are related very often to things that have happened to you in your life. But in our current way of understanding illness, we of uh, understanding distress, we seal that off behind a label. We give people the pills which have some advantages but also some significant disadvantages. And because this isn't actually addressing the source of the problem, people on the whole don't get better. It's quite a shocking fact how few people recover within our current mental health system. 
it's much more common for people to embark on a career, sometimes for many years, many decades, sometimes for their whole lives of being a psychiatric patient, of coming in and out of hospital. Now, to my mind, none of that has to happen. You know, nobody's beyond help and healing, but that's too often the end result of the narrow approach on diagnosis and the medication and the other types of intervention that go with it. God, it's really shocking. <laughs> and people are being trained in this approach. Well, they are. That's what's crazy, is that it, yeah. it then became something that people are told to believe to yeah. be able to help people. Yeah. So yeah. those people who want to have a career helping people... Yeah, they have to buy this model. They have to buy the model. Yeah. world what is what are the alternative viewpoints and approaches to um, a difficult experience of distress um, than diagnosis and medication okay so I mean I'm a mental health professional myself have been for many years and services are full of you know very dedicated staff who work very hard and the, you know people do of course find genuine help through meeting professionals who can listen and understand them. There are lots of those people around. So this isn't about criticising individuals. It's about looking at a whole system that is based on the wrong principles, as I would see it. However, there are some alternatives within the system, uh, one, of, one of which I'm going to talk about briefly. It's a version of telling your story. Because, as I said, I think what we actually need to do if we're not diagnosing people is find a way of listening to their stories, however hidden they may seem, however painful and upsetting they may be to hear or to learn about. And as psychologists, we have an alternative which is called formulation. It's a kind of jargon word, but all psychologists are trained in formulation. And essentially what that means is it's a kind of structured way of putting together someone's story over a period of weeks or months. So. The idea is that the professional, a psychologist, and some other professions are also taking this on, brings along their experience, their knowledge of the evidence and the research, and the person in front of them, the client or service user, brings along their account of their life and what's happened and how it felt to them and what sense they made of it. You put those two things together, you can come up with what you might call an evidence-based narrative or an evidence-based story, which will evolve, which ideally follows the person through their journey, throughout the help they're receiving, which is, you know, never kind of finished in a way because there's always things to add, things to reflect on, new insights to be gained and so on. But essentially it's about understanding how and why someone came to have these struggles. And of course, once you've got a good understanding of that, you're much clearer usually about what the person needs to do to move forward. And that might be therapy, but it's just as likely to be other forms of help, like, you know, thinking differently about perhaps leaving unhappy relationships or, you know, changing your lifestyle or getting more practical forms of help or making sure you have all the benefits you're entitled to. It's usually a combination of things. So formulation is quite a widely used um, process in mental health services and in with counsellors and private therapists and so on. Lucy's call for new ways of thinking is a powerful opportunity for all of us to reflect on the messages we have been told 
and to wonder about how as a society we can move forward in different ways. I asked Lucy how people can learn more about these debates and how they can become more informed about the options available to them. And I'm going to do a little plug, I'm afraid. This is a book I wrote, which is very cheap, under nine quid. It's called A Straight Talking Introduction to Psychiatric Diagnosis. It's part of a series. There's one about psychiatric medication. There's one about being a mental health service user and so on. And the reason I wrote it is because I think it's really, really important for people to be aware of these debates, to be aware there are different ways of seeing things, to be aware they don't have to take on an illness label, that might suit them, but it might not. To, to be aware that they have to see medication as the only thing that's going to help. It might be part of it, but it doesn't have to be the only part. And there is a whole list of resources, including self-help resources and websites at the end, for people who want to perhaps explore different ideas. So the message of the book is informed choice, really. It's not about you are not allowed to have a diagnosis, because realistically, for all sorts of practical reasons, people may well need to use their diagnosis. They may need it to get time off sick, they may need it to access benefits or services. But what I'm very keen is that people don't feel that they have to understand their problems in that way. They may, in some services, have to keep that understanding a bit to themselves because not all services welcome that approach. But I think it's really important for people themselves to be able to think, well, this is one version. I have thought about it myself. It's not the version that makes most, self, most sense to me. I can see perhaps there are reasons for my distress. I want to explore these further. I don't want to take on the identity of someone who's mentally ill. I don't want to think of myself as having an illness. I don't want to think of myself as being in some way fundamentally different because of my biology or the way my brain works. I, st I want to see myself as someone who's had quite a few things to struggle with and perhaps is still working out how those things have affected me and how I might find a way forward. So that's the choice I think we have to offer people. I think that's the only professional ethical thing to do. Okay. And I also want to ask you, why do you think it has become so entrenched in our culture? How, how was something that didn't have any validity become so widespread? Well, I think that takes us back to all the kind of vested interests we, we talked about, really. Mm. Yeah. And, um, and lack of information. Lack of information, yeah. But I do think the most important thing we can do to change that is to have grassroots change. Mm -hmm. you know, if you think about any revolution in the way people think or in the way things work, you know, the people most the people at the top have a lot invested in this in this approach. You can see that because a lot of the disputes get incredibly, incredibly heated. And if you dare to challenge this, you can easily get told all sorts of things like you're denying that people are distressed. Well nobody's doing that. You know, like you're just picking fights. Well, this is not this is about something much bigger than that. So when you start challenging ideas you quickly find out that a lot of people are very keen for them to stay as they are. What we actually need is grassroots change so that ordinary people and particularly young people I think are actually given proper information about how they might want to understand the difficulties and what kind of help they might want. 
because if people as a whole are not just going to be sold this narrative and not just believe that that is the truth and not just be told that you know this is the version of reality you have to take on then you know then i think there's real hope for change and i i think change is on its way one of the most encouraging developments in the last 20 30 years has been the rise of what is sometimes called the service use movement or the survivor movement so this is about people who've been through the system themselves as patients who have often found it profoundly unhelpful who have managed to escape through various means through meeting someone who's was able to give them a different way of looking at things, through reading things, through self-help, and who are now actively campaigning for a very different system. And they're not saying we want, well, they're not just saying we want better resources or more staff, they're saying something much more fundamental than that. They're saying we want a very, very, very different way of understanding people's mental health problems. The problem is the whole way we think about it and everything else follows from there. Since the time of this interview, Lucy, other senior psychologists and service user campaigners have developed and published the Power Threat Meaning Framework. It provides an alternative method for psychologists and mental health professionals to help people make sense of their experiences without the use of psychiatric diagnosis. The framework is now being used by many people in the UK and in other parts of the world and continues to grow in its popularity and clinical use. You can find out more information about the framework on the British Psychological Society's website. Thank you for listening. If you are interested in finding out more about the work that Lucy and her colleagues are doing to bring forward this important information, you can visit her Facebook page or website called Drop the Disorder. You can also visit the website Mad in America, which has a range of articles by people who are bringing forward critical perspectives on these issues. If you are a teacher or a parent who is interested in bringing our alternative mental health education into your school, please find out more about our work at www.statesofmind.org.